22, um, and we're going to start at the end, kind of, and then back up a little bit. Um, I love to watch movies, and I love to watch movies that kind of start at the end, and then they backtrack and show you how they got there. We're going to start in the New Testament and backtrack to uh, explain a little bit of what Jesus is saying. So if you got your Bibles, go to Luke 22, and uh, tonight we're going to start in verse 14 of Luke 22, and I will read it to you. Jesus is hanging out with his disciples, and they're about to take a thing called Passover. Passover had been um, instituted many years before that, and it had been something that the Jewish people celebrated every year to celebrate their redemption and their delivery from Egypt, from the strong hand of Pharaoh. And so Jesus is doing something that would have been very normal to them. He's practicing something that was very normal. The disciples would have done this every year as good Jewish boys. But Jesus is about to radically redefine Passover. Let's watch what he does here. Look at verse 14. It says this. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to him, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. There was something really important about this Passover for Jesus. He had lived for 33 years up to this point. So that meant he had had 33 Passover meals. But he had earnestly desired to eat this Passover with these guys he was eating it with. Why? Because he's about to radically redefine it. This Passover is big for Jesus. Watch what it continues to say here. It says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it or eat it again is basically what he's saying. I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That's going to make sense in a minute. Verse 17, and he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said this, take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God has come. And he took the bread, and when he had given this, he gave thanks and broke it, and he gave it to him, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. So do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, he took it, saying, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is on this table. For the Son of Man goes, and as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they begin to question one another. Here's what Jesus is doing here. He is radically redefining something that these guys had practiced for their whole lives as good Jewish boys. He was taking the bread that you kind of see on these tables that would have been unleavened matzah type bread. And he was taking the cup and he was redefining what it was all about. And here's what Jesus said. He said, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. And here's why I think he said that is because Jesus earnestly desired to fulfill that which he came to fulfill. And he's about to do that. He says, I'm about to go suffer. So Jesus knows he's on the way to the cross. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be flogged. He's going to shed his blood. He's going to have his muscle and tendon ripped out of his body. He's going to be unrecognizable. He's going to go to the cross and die a bloody, horrible, nasty death. That's what drives me crazy when Christianity, especially in America, becomes very sophisticated and tame. Because there is nothing sophisticated and there is nothing tame about the cross of Jesus. Nothing. And we become very sophisticated when we sit in our pews every week and we hear a good message and we leave and we say, that was great. And then we go eat fried chicken and we do nothing for the kingdom of God. Nothing. Just just saying. So it's not tame and it's not sophisticated. And here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, this is me. This bread that you've eaten all these years and this cup that you've drank all these years, it's my blood and it's my body. But, but let's go back to kind of the beginning. If you've got your Bibles, go to the book of Exodus. Uh, you're going to have to back up quite a bit to get there. Exodus chapter 2. And uh, we have been walking through some of these guys in the Old Testament, Noah, 
with the boat and Abraham with the covenant and all of this stuff. But we're going to back up to Exodus and see what Jesus is redefining, see why it really matters and see what it's all about and connect some of the dots. Exodus chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, go there. And we're going to start in verse 23. And I'm going to kind of set the table here for you. The people of Israel had found themselves in Egypt in a land that was not the land that God had promised to them. And for many years they flourished there, and the Abrahamic covenant had become true. The people of God had grown, and they had multiplied, and they'd grown. And then what happens is this, is that a Pharaoh takes over and realizes that these people are growing so much that they may overtake my land. So he makes them his slaves. And they are his slaves, and on their backs he builds his kingdom. And here's what we see in Exodus chapter 2. Starting in verse 23 and uh, following, Exodus chapter 2, it says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died. So the Pharaoh, one of them, died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, his covenant with Isaac, and his covenant with Jacob. And I love this part, verse 29, verse 25. God saw the people of Israel... And God knew. <laughs> Don't you love that? It just says that God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Can I just tell you something tonight? Just, just push and pause kind of where we're going tonight and just throw this in. It's free. God sees you and he knows. You fill in the blank because I can't do it for you. Whatever you're going through tonight, whatever burden you carry, whatever you're walking through in life, whatever it is, God sees you tonight and he knows. God looked down on the whole nation of people who were crying out. They were groaning. They were crying to God. This is not what you promised us, God. This is not a land flowing with milk and honey. This is not a promised land. This is not good for us. We're in slavery. So they cry out to God. And it says that God heard their cry and he heard their groanings. And thus the rest of the story. So there's a guy born. His name is Moses. And I'm going to fly through a lot of stuff to get us to the point that we need to be at. But there's a guy born. His name is Moses. And the Pharaoh throws out an edict basically to murder the children of the Jews to try to keep their population down because they were growing exponentially. And so Moses' mother, to save Moses, we know the story, many of us, if we grew up in church, puts him in a reed basket, puts him in the river. He floats down the lazy river. It was awesome. And then he is found providentially by Pharaoh's wife. He's taken in or adopted by Pharaoh's court, and he grows up in Pharaoh's court. A Hebrew child grows up in Pharaoh's court. You, know, you Tell me that you don't believe in the sovereignty of God. <laughs> A Hebrew child is found and grows up in Pharaoh's court. He grows up there. He has all the education that that court would have offered. He has all the amenities, everything that would have been offered, and he's a Hebrew child. But he grew up in Pharaoh's court. One day he sees one of his own people being beaten and being persecuted. And out of anger, he kills another Egyptian and he flees. So we find Moses in this story after fleeing in a desert. And God comes to Moses. I'm pushing fast forward a lot here because I need to get us to where we need to be. God comes to Moses. And he comes to Moses in a burning bush and he speaks to Moses and he says, Moses, here's the deal. My people, I've heard their cry and I've heard their groanings and I've chosen you to go and to get them out of captivity. And Moses' response is really funny because it's like my response would have been. Basically, Moses says, 
I can't do that, God. I'm not equipped. I'm not a good speaker. I can't go stand in front of Pharaoh. By the way, do you know I'm wanted by the law there? <laughs> he says, no, I don't, I don't care. Go. And then when he asked them, who am I going to tell Pharaoh sent me? I'm going to walk into Pharaoh's court and say, hey, by the way, will you let all hundred thousands of these Jews that you have enslaved and are building your kingdom? Hey, why, here's, a, here's an idea. Why don't you just let them go? Pharaoh's going to look at me and laugh. So when he looks at me and laughs, who do I tell him sent me? And God speaks and he just says this. You just tell him that I am sent you. I am in Hebrew is the beginning and the end. It is everything. It is all encompassing. I am sent you. So Moses goes. Look at Exodus chapter 5 with me if you would. We see Moses go. Says this afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus the Lord says, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So they go to Pharaoh and they said, Let our people go. And Pharaoh laughs at him and says, I don't know this God you're talking about. I have no clue who you're talking about. Because back in Egypt in that day, they had many gods as we're going to see in a second. They had a lot of gods. Pharaoh thought that he was a god. There was one major god that was the sun god, Ra, the sun god. And Pharaoh was an incarnation of the sun god. So he believed that he was the son of God, in a sense. Sound familiar? So basically, Pharaoh said, I don't know that god. That's not one of our plethora of gods. So I'm not going to do what he says. I don't know who you are. Why don't you get back to work, Hebrew child? And so Moses leaves. Skip with me over to chapter 6, and we'll look here starting in verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do for Pharaoh. For with a strong hand I will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. Verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, I appeared to Isaac, I appeared to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. And moreover, I have heard the groanings of my people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. If you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about Abraham and the, God, the covenant that God made with Abraham, that he would have a great land, he'd be a great nation, and God has heard his people and he's remembered his covenant. That's really, really good, by the way. That God remembers his covenant with people. He continues on and says this. Look at, um, look at verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So God says to Moses, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to do it with my outstretched arm of salvation and with great acts of judgment. Well, what are those acts of judgment? Well, continue on with me and look at chapter 7. Skip over here chapter. And we're going to look at verses 8 through 13. So they go back to Pharaoh to have another conference. It says verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. Because they're going to go back to Pharaoh, and he's going to say, well, prove that your God is really God by doing a miracle. So he said, okay, well, here's what you do when he says that. So they go to Pharaoh, 
Look at verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just what the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Verse 11. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt. See, Pharaoh had in his court these magicians that were supposed to be able to conjure up the power of the gods. They were supposed to be supernatural in some way. So Aaron is standing there in the presence of Pharaoh, and he says, give me a sign. So Aaron throws down a staff. It turns into a snake. So he gets his guys together who were magicians, magicians, and they perform a similar miracle. Check out what it says here. Moses and Aaron went, Aaron cast down his staff, it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt. And also they did the same by their secret arts. Here's what it's saying here. They were not really doing what they seemed to be doing. It's sleight of hand. Their secret arts. Then it says this, look at verse 12. For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But check this out, I love it. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Their, Aaron's snake ate their snakes. It's like my snake ate your snake. Booyah. Um, <laughs> verse 13. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to him as the Lord had said. It says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So here's what God says he's going to do. Just wait, Moses, because I'm going to bring about judgment on Pharaoh. Now, here's what happens as we kind of journey through the rest of the story. In chapter 8 and the preceding chapters all the way up to chapter 12, you have what's called the ten plagues. You have a plague that the Nile River turns to blood. You have a plague of frogs. You have a plague of locusts. You have a plague that all the cattle die. You have all of these plagues that happen on Pharaoh and on his nation. Now, here's the really crazy part. is because Pharaoh is basically challenging the one true God. So he's coming to his court, and he said, I don't know the one true God. I don't know who you're talking about, and I'm not going to let my people go. And God hardens the heart of Pharaoh because he wants to show that he's mightier than all of their gods. So here's what God does. If you've ever read the story or you've seen the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, you know what I'm talking about? No one's seen that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Great movie. You should rent it. There's all of these plagues that happen. And here's what God is doing. God is enacting judgment, not just on Pharaoh and the nation. God is proving a point with these plagues. Every plague, the Nile River turning to blood, the frogs, the cattle dying, the locust, and the death of the firstborn child of every Egyptian was a judgment on all the Egyptian gods. Here's what he's saying. My divinity as Yahweh God is bigger than all of your gods. Now check this out. In chapter 8, actually go back, uh, chapter 7, I'm sorry. Chapter 7, you have the plague, the first plague, the water in the Nile was turned to blood. There was a god who was basically like this fish god that they worshipped, that they believed brought life. The Nile River for the Egyptians was life-giving, and everything around the Nile River was green, and it grew, and it was lush. And here's what God does. He says, the Nile River and your little fish god does not give life, I give life. So you know what God does? He kills all the fish in the Nile River, it turns to blood, they all die, and God is saying, I am the giver of life. Later on, a couple chapters later, the Bible says that all the cattle in the land died. There was a God that was worshipped that was basically a cow God. They worshipped this God, and it was worshipped by Pharaoh mostly. It was one of the supreme gods that they worshipped. And here's what happened. God kills all the cattle in the land. They get anthrax, and they die. And here's what God is saying. That is not God. I am God. Then later, all of these locusts come, 
and the locusts come and they swarm the whole city, the whole country, and then darkness grows over the whole country. And it was a judgment on the sun god, which was believed to be one of the highest gods, that they could never put out the sun. The sun god could never be defeated. And God is saying, I trump all of your gods. You give me a god, I will trump him. God is mocking the Egyptian gods. Love it. He's like, you want to play? We'll play. Let's go. But here's what happens if you skip forward a little bit in these plagues. The final plague is the plague of all plagues. Look at uh, chapter 11, verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will there ever be again. Here's why this is huge. God has enacted all these plagues and all these judgment and all this mockery on all these Egyptian gods. And here's what he's about to do. He's about to wipe out the firstborn of every person in Egypt. Here's why this is important. Because Pharaoh thought he was an incarnation of the sun god. And so he was like divinity and deity. And his son was going to be divinity and deity. And he was going to take over the kingdom. And so what God is doing is he is saying, I'm going to take the very deity that you think is the highest deity. I'm going to take him out. It seems very judgmental of God to take all the firstborn children. He said, Pharaoh, I'm going to take your firstborn child. And I'm going to take every firstborn child. And I'm going to take the cattle's firstborn child to prove that I am Yahweh God. But he tells the children of Israel to get prepared for this because he is about to deliver them from the land. So check out chapter 12 and we'll just start reading here in verse 1. And this is kind of the summation of the story. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, In the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It should be the first month of the year for you. So tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for the household, one lamb per household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, that he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of their persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly and the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight as the sun is going down. Then they shall take some of the blood of the lamb and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentils of the house in which they eat. And then they shall eat the flesh of it that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. So here's what God says. He says, I'm going to come in at midnight. And I'm going to kill the firstborn of every person in this land to prove that I am Yahweh God. But Israel, I want to save you. I want to bring redemption to you. So here's what he says. If you go and you find a lamb that's standing in the pasture, he says it needs to be an unblemished lamb, a perfect lamb. He says, take it and slit its throat. Kill it. Now, this would have been really difficult for the Egyptians. You want to know why? Because as the Egyptians were living some 400 odd years, and I mean, as the Israelites were living some 400 odd years in Egypt, they not only were worshiping the one true God, but they'd actually started to forget who the one true God was, and they were worshiping Egyptian gods. And of those Egyptian gods were cows, but there were also gods that looked very similar to lambs, to sheep. And so basically he's saying, go out and get something that represents one of your gods, and I want you to kill it. I want you to kill it. And he says, I want you to take the blood of that lamb, 
a very heinous thing, and I want you to take it, and I want you to put it over the doorpost of your house. I want you to mark your house. That's what I want you to do. And they're all sitting there going, are you serious? Like everyone's going to see blood all over our house. This is not cool. He says, no, I want you to take its blood. I want you to smear it over the doorpost of your house. I want you to put it on the lentils of your house. I want everybody to know that you are an Israelite. And then here's what's going to happen. That night at midnight, the angel of the, of the Lord, the angel of death is going to pass through. And every firstborn is going to be taken. But those who have the blood over their door are going to be passed over. So you know what happened? About midnight that night, as they all went to bed, twilight before that, some of them had painted the blood of a lamb over their doorpost. See, the Egyptians didn't know this to do this because the Lord had not spoken to them. He had spoken to his people, the Israelites. Now, the Israelites were very similar to the Egyptians because, like I said, they used to worship pagan gods. So as the angel of death came into the nation, he would have looked into the window of an Egyptian house, and what he would have seen on the dresser would have been pagan god, pagan god, pagan god, pagan god. And he would have gone into that house and taken the life of the firstborn child. And he would have gone to another Egyptian house, and he would have seen on the dresser, pagan god, pagan god, pagan god, pagan god. And then he would have come to an Israelite's house. And for most part, what he would have seen when he looked in that house, on that dresser, many times, in many instances, would have been pagan god, pagan god, pagan god for an Israelite. So the difference was not that these Israelites were perfect people. They were messed up. They were sinners. They were worshiping idols. Here's the difference. Over their doorposts and on their house was the blood of the lamb. And he would look in that house and he would see, very similar to what he saw in an Egyptian house, but then he would see the blood of the lamb and he would pass over. He would pass over. So there's some things about this lamb that were very, very significant. Check out with me here. We're going to kind of examine this lamb for a second. He says, when you take the lamb, it's got to be a very specific lamb. In verse 5, he says this, your lamb shall be without blemish. It had to be a perfect lamb, without blemish, without spot, without deformity, without malady. It had to be an unblemished lamb. It had to be unblemished. It also had to be a lamb that was going to be inspected. Look at verse 6. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly, the congregation of Israel, shall kill their lambs at twilight. So here's what he's saying. It's going to be an unblemished lamb, a perfect lamb, but it's also going to be in a lamb that's inspected. What they were doing is they're saying, keep it until the 14th day of the month, and I want you to inspect it, to make sure that there's not a blemish somewhere, to make sure that nothing is broken, to make sure that this lamb is proper to put its blood over the doorpost of your house. It has to be unblemished, but then you have to inspect it. Then he says something else. He kind of continues on. And he says also in verse 6, he says it's got to be unblemished. It's got to be inspected. And then in verse 6 it says this. You'll keep it for the 14th day of the month, and then the whole assembly of Israel will kill their lambs at twilight. Everyone together, hundreds and thousands of people, and their households would take this lamb, and they would put it out in front of their house, and they would kill it. And all these Egyptians are probably walking around going home from work going, what are these Israelites doing? They just took all these lambs and they just cut them. There's blood everywhere. It's a bloody mess. And then these Egyptians see these Israelites taking this blood and, and taking it with their hands or with anything they could get and just rubbing it over their doorposts. And they're like, these Hebrew people have gone nuts. But it's what God told them to do. Because God sometimes tells us to do things that are crazy. And then it says this, very specific to the lamb. He said it's got to be unblemished. It's got to be inspected to make sure it's unblemished. You're going to murder that lamb. And then it says this. Verse 7, 
They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentils of the house in which they eat. So he says the lamb has to be applied. You have to take the blood of the lamb and apply it to your house. If it's not applied, it doesn't matter. Right? If they killed, they could kill 20 lambs in front of their house and the blood could be all over their front yard and it wouldn't matter if it wasn't applied in the way that Jesus and that God had told them to apply it. So he said it's got to be applied. But here's the really cool thing, the last thing. It says this. It says, after that, you've killed a lamb, you've taken its blood and smeared it across the front of your house, which is really weird. Now you've got to eat it. Verse 8. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. And for hundreds and thousands, thousands of years at least, they practiced this because God used this to pass over and deliver his people out of slavery and bondage. So every year, Jewish people would get their family together and they would take a lamb and they would kill it and they would eat it and they would celebrate Passover. And that night when Jesus was with his disciples and he was celebrating Passover and he says, this is my body, it's broken for you, eat it. And he says, this is my blood that's poured out for you. Drink it. Jesus is taking something that would have been very normal to them, and he is redefining it. Because you want to know something? Check out these points that we just had up here. Jesus was the unblemished, spotless lamb of God. Jesus was sinless. He had to be to be the savior of the world. Jesus was inspected before being crucified. When Jesus was taken, he was passed around from governor to governor, back to Pilate, to all these people. And a lot of theologians look at that and they say, this is the inspection that the Lamb of God went through to represent the inspection that the Lamb before Passover went through. They inspected it for days. Jesus went through an inspection. Jesus was unblemished. Jesus went through an inspection. But Jesus was also murdered on the cross. Nails to his hands, nails to his feet. He was flogged. He was murdered. He was killed. His body was broken. His blood was shed. He was murdered. And if you don't have the blood of Christ applied to your life, then the wrath of God will not pass over you. Just like that night, they said, apply the blood to the doorposts so that the wrath of God will pass over your house. And here's what we know from Scripture, that the blood of Christ has to be applied to the life of a person so that someday in eternity when they are standing before God and they're going to be judged, that the wrath of God will pass over. And God simply sees the blood of Jesus. He doesn't see anything else. And here's what Jesus said when he was teaching. He said, if you don't eat of my flesh, then you have no part of me. And he said that night with those disciples, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. In the same way that the Lamb of God said that, the Lamb of Passover was to be roasted and to be eaten by the people. Jesus is full fulfillment. He's the unblemished, inspected, murdered, blood-applied, eaten lamb. He fulfills it to a T. Jesus fulfills every single bit of it. And if you go back to Luke, you can go there if you want to, but Jesus is taking this Passover meal and he takes the he takes the bread and he says, Hey, he says, every time you do this, do it and remember and think about me. It's interesting. Why would Jesus take the bread and he take the cup that day with his disciples and say, Every time you do this, remember and think about me? Because he was redefining it, but because he knew our tendency. And he knew Matt's tendency, and he knew your tendency. And here is our tendency. Our tendency is to forget the good things that God does. 
See, the reason why that God instituted Passover every single year, if you continue on in Exodus, you will see that God releases them from Egypt. They go through the Red Sea. They pass over on the other side, and immediately they institute Passover. And every year they do it. It's a feast that they do. They celebrate. It was a sign. The, the broken body and the blood of the cup of the wine was a sign for them. So they would never forget what God had done. We have signs in our country. If I, uh, if I held up an American flag or if I held up a, a piece of cloth with uh, stars on it and stripes on it, you would know what that is. It's a flag of our country. If I threw up a picture of the Statue of Liberty without, you, without me saying what it was, you would know what it is. You know what it stands for. It stands for freedom. It stands for freedom, not just to us. It stands for freedom to a bunch of people in a bunch of lands. That they can come here and get a job and live here free and practice religion freely. It stands for freedom. If I showed you a picture of the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, many of you would know what that is. It's a massive wall full of people's names who've given their lives so that you and I can sit here tonight free. There's a bunch of imagery that we have as a country. And even as a country... We have these festivals, we have these feasts, we have these celebrations that we do. Veterans Day that's coming up where we celebrate the people who died for our country. We have July the 4th where we celebrate our independence. We shoot off fireworks and it's this massive festival. We eat and we get fatter. It's awesome. We have all of these festivals and all these feasts. You want to know why? Because they are like a sign to us so we will never forget. We celebrate Memorial Day, we celebrate Veterans Day, we celebrate July the 4th, so we won't forget the great price that was paid to purchase the freedom for our country. And even in a bigger way, our kingdom, the kingdom of God, has these markers. It's called the cross, the blood of Jesus, the broken body of Christ. And here's what Jesus is saying that night. You're going to celebrate this, and you're not going to forget. The Jewish people celebrate this over and over and over and over and over again. And Jesus takes it and radically redefines it. He says, this is my body, broken for you. And he took the cup, and he said, this is my blood, shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You want to know why I think he said do this in remembrance of me? Because we have a tendency to forget. And when we forget, we become really tame. And we become really sophisticated with our faith, don't we? Man, we go to Bible fellowship and we go to Bible studies. Some of us go to 20 Bible studies a week, man. Like, don't do that. Like, serve somewhere, really. We check our boxes. We have a cute little tame faith. But it doesn't look anything like the cross because the cross is not sophisticated. It's a bloody mess. The cross is brokenness. The cross is not tame. And you know what's true about us is also true about the people of Israel is that immediately after they'd been redeemed from the bondage of slavery, they get across the other side, so to speak, of the Red Sea, and they're celebrating, and they do Passover, and Moses is beginning to commune with God. And in Exodus 33, you can just trust me, you can go there later, Moses has been up on the mountain, he's been communing with God, he's gotten the law of God, he's got Ten Commandments, he's about to come back down the mountain, he's going to tell these people, he's going to say, this is how you can live with God and live with one another. This is the law of God. And he comes down the mountain, and what are the people doing? 
They're worshiping an idol. What's really interesting is they're worshiping a golden calf, which looked a whole lot like one of the Egyptian gods that was mocked by Yahweh God. They had forgotten. Not a lot of time has passed from their exodus, but they have forgotten. And Moses is up on the mountain communing with the holy God. I mean, he's telling them, he's like, this is how you're supposed to live. And Moses comes down, he's like, hey guys, I've talked to God, and he's given me these ten laws that kind of sum up all of life. Wouldn't you like to know them? And they're like, no, we're cool, we have a golden calf. That's awesome, thanks Moses. The Bible says that that day, that God's wrath came down on the people, and 3,000 people perished. What's interesting is in the book of Acts, when they were celebrating Pentecost, and they would have been celebrating the giving of the law, and they would have remembered that day, Peter stands up and preaches, and 3,000 people come to Jesus. They don't experience the wrath of God. They experience the grace and mercy of Jesus. God is saying, I've started a new covenant, and I am doing a new thing. And it's in the blood of Jesus, and it's in the broken body of Jesus. And I want you to take it, and I want you to remember what Christ did for you at the cross. What I'm going to do for you at the cross, I want you to remember that. I want you to taste it. I want you to experience it. And every time we take this, we remember what Christ has done for us at the cross. And for some of us, we've forgotten. That's how our worship is very tame and it's very cute and it's very pretty. But where are the people who are just all out passionate for God? Who remember every single day what happened to them at the cross? Because we tend to forget. And the Israelites didn't just forget that day. In Joshua, in Joshua 24, Joshua is about to lead them into the promised land. <laughs> and he says, choose this day who you're going to serve. You want to serve the gods of your fathers that they worshipped in Egypt? Hundreds of years later, they are still struggling with idolatry because they cannot remember what God did for them. Catch this. God redeemed them from slavery. He brought them out of the land. He delivered them. God has redeemed you from sin and the slavery of sin. He has brought you out of it. He has given you a new identity. And yet sometimes we forget. Will you worship the God of your forefathers or will you worship the one true God, Joshua said? As for me and my house, we'll worship the Lord. We will worship the Lord. And for us tonight, some of us have experienced the cross before, but we've just forgotten its power in our life. You've become a slave to sin again. You have gone back and begun worshiping some other God. Materialism, relationships, yourself. And here's what Jesus says. Every time you take the bread of communion and the cup of communion, you remember what I have done for you. So some have experienced the cross but forgotten the cross. But maybe some in this room, you've never experienced the cross before. Not truly. Maybe you experienced religion or legalism, but you haven't experienced the cross of Jesus, the blood of Jesus that covers and the broken body of Jesus. Passover that day, as they painted that blood over their door, was to be a covering for them. And the blood of Jesus is the unblemished, inspected, applied Lamb of God who was murdered for our sin. And Jesus on that day, he was saying, I am redefining all of this for you. It's packed with meaning up to this point, but I'm going to pack it with more meaning. That I am the body, and I am the blood of that lamb, and I'm about to go get on that cross. And oh, by the way, if you want to follow me, (laughs) you have to take up your cross and go where I'm going if you want to follow Jesus.
Jesus invites us to the same untamed, unsophisticated walk that he walked that night. His blood, his body shed for us. Tonight, what we're going to do is we are going to take Passover, take the Lord's Supper, that is, and remember the broken body and the blood of Jesus. And as uh, Zach and the guys come, I just want to kind of tell you how this is going to work tonight. Um, the Lord's Supper is, is a time to kind of inspect yourself. Um, a lot of times when we come to the Lord's Supper, we feel like we have to be perfect to take the Lord's Supper. And the reality is the Lord's Supper tells us that we are never going to be worthy. And that's why we remember it and take it. But the Bible is very clear to inspect yourself before you take the Lord's Supper. So tonight, maybe if there's someone that you have odds against in this room, you may need to go to them before you take the cup. You may need to go to them and say, can we take communion together? And I want to forgive you and I want you to forgive me. If there's some unrepentant, unconfessed sin in your life, you just may need to come down here to the front and make this place an altar and get on your face and say, God, there's unconfessed sin in my life that you've been dealing with me, but I haven't dealt with it. And so before I take the cup and the body, I want to repent of that. I want to confess that to you. But the body and the blood reminds us that we are never perfect. So tonight you don't have to be perfect to take it. You just have to be a Christ follower. And tonight if you're not a Christ follower, we would love to introduce you to Jesus. The Bible says you can call on the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. That doesn't have to be here in a church. That doesn't have to be in any place. You don't have to come down to some place. You can sit right in your chair and call on the name of the Lord. But tonight, here's how it's going to kind of work. We've got some of the elements on each side of the room, and we didn't want to have a bottleneck of people trying to take communion. But tonight, these guys are going to lead us in some songs of worship. And um, on your own, you can come at any point and take communion. If you want to come with someone and take communion, that's awesome. If you want to come and spend some time praying down here, that's awesome. Our prayer room is open. If you walk out here and you go to the right, right on your left is a place called Declaring Refuge. That's a prayer room that we have every week. If you want to come get these elements and go to the prayer room so you can be alone, you can do that. Some of us tonight have forgotten the great sacrifice that Christ paid. And every now and then we need Jesus to kind of jolt us and go, hey, remember? You remember what I did? It was for you? Remember. The price I paid, the blood I spilled, the sacrifice I made. And he's going to help us do that through communion. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to worship and take communion as you feel led. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that um, you chose to send your son, your only son, to be, as uh, John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. God, I thank you for, that for those of us who uh, follow you, the cross of Christ is central to our kingdom. It is the banner that our kingdom waves. The broken body, the spilled blood, the forgiveness of sin, the deliverance from sin, the redemption from sin. It's all about grace. And God, I thank you that many years ago in Egypt, you, you told those Israelites to take a lamb and to kill it, and to take its blood and to put it on their doorpost. Because you knew that that would be a picture. It was just a picture of what you were going to do forever in Christ for us. So God, I pray that tonight as we um, worship, as we take communion, that you would remind us of the depth of sacrifice that you paid. 
And save us from being tame, sophisticated Christians. Because there is nothing tame about your cross and there is nothing sophisticated about your cross. So, Father, we worship you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let's worship the King and you can take communion as you feel led.